We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. The logic of Colossians and the logic of Christianity is very important to grasp. It's a different logic than what many people expect, but the logic itself is important to grasp. It's the logic of since then. It's the logic of just as. Chapter 3, verse 1, Colossians. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things that are above. Since this is the case, this is the action that is appropriate. Or the just as kind of logic back in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Given this the case, this is the way to live. It's the consistent logic of much of the scriptures that the reason for action, the way of action, flows out of the gospel itself rather than being added on to the gospel. It can't be added on to the gospel, of course, because if it were, then we'd be back into the heresy of the gospel plus that we've been speaking against for the last few weeks. Having become a Christian, you can't then add on a whole series of rules and regulations and of laws because it's of those very things that we have been saved. You can't now then add on more than Christ. It's just as you received Christ, you are to go on. It's since you have been raised with Christ, you are to go on. It is chapter 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ, you are to not do certain things. You see it consistently in Paul's writings. Paul writes a letter to this particular situation about the problems that this group of people are having. But when he writes to this situation, he just doesn't make up ad hoc, pragmatic, Bob Hawke kinds of answers to the problems. That's not the way. He's not like that politician who will just say, oh, well, there's your situation, this is the solution. It's not like that. Nor does he make up a whole series of rules and regulations for them. But rather, each time in each of the epistles, he says, all right, there's the situation, there's the group of people. Now let's get back into the gospel and see how the gospel truths apply to this situation, this group of people. It's humanly speaking, what makes the epistles of Paul so, so of such abiding interest to Christian people? Because it's not just situation ethics. It's not just advice for the particular situation and we live in a totally different situation, therefore most of it's irrelevant to us. It's rather seeing how the gospel message impinges upon the way of life. And though our situations may vary a lot from one time to another, one place to another, seeing how the gospel has its application in life continues to be relevant. It's the logic of bringing the gospel into ethics, into behaviour, into lifestyle, into living out obedience to Jesus Christ. Uh, a very important contrast, you see, when you come to just after the New Testament, there is a writer, a man called Ignatius, who wrote a series of seven letters, and in that sense are not unlike St Paul who wrote some 13 or so letters. Ignatius is on the way to his martyrdom and therefore, as a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ, is somebody whose words the early church paid a lot of attention to. It's just early second century stuff. He is writing to different situations in different towns. And in these situations of heresy and of trouble and of division within the churches, he gives a whole series of rules and regulations. He doesn't go back into the gospel and come to the conclusions as to how to live. He gives his rules and regulations. And the church has been afflicted with them ever since, really. There are all kinds of rules. For example, he's facing the division within the church come about by heresy. He says something which is eminently practical and most likely suitable to his own day although it's wrong. He says, you stick with your bishop, your elder, your leader in your church. Wherever your bishop is, wherever your leader is, wherever your presbyter is, wherever he is, that's where the church is. Don't go off into the little faction groups. Don't be one of those who are divisive personalities and so on, who, who go off to the little group. You stick where your leaders are. 
see, very practical, pragmatic advice, but of course it winds up with him saying that only where the bishop is is the Lord's Supper. Only where the bishop is is the church of God. And so it winds up with the bishop being an essential part, your leadership being an essential part of Christian fellowship. Instead of the gospel being the centre, the bishop becomes the centre. It's actually added on the whole ecclesiastical traditions of, of, of the church which led us in part astray for many, many years. Good advice, but not gospel advice. And Paul's never liked that, you see. Paul is not a novelty thinker. Paul is not a man who is making up a new religion. A very common, popular notion. You say that Jesus was the simple Galilean and then came along the Pharisaic Paul who twisted Christianity into a totally new direction. That's not out of reading from Paul. Paul constantly comes back to Jesus, comes back to the gospel message itself to only see what the gospel is saying. Just as you received Christ Jesus is how you're to live. Since you have been raised with Christ, this is how you are to be living, risen with Christ. Since you died with Christ, that is what you're to put away because that is what you've died with Christ too. It comes from the God. It's the logic of just as. The logic of since then. Now, there are two fundamental things that give rise to his ethics part of Colossians in chapters 3 and 4. It's the dying with Christ and the rising with Christ. The area we haven't really been touching on so far is the resurrection area, and for the next two weeks, that's what we do. Resurrection lifestyle number one comes tonight, verses 1 to 17 of chapter 3, and resurrection lifestyle number two comes next week with the rest of chapters 3 and 4. But we have already been talking about his death. We already saw that we have died and in his death we have been rescued. It's his death that we've kept emphasising. So, for example, back in chapter 1, verse 13, he has rescued us, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption. How do we have redemption? The forgiveness of sins. Well, it's spelt out in 1, 20 and 21 through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Or down in chapter 2, verse 14, Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and principalities, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in the cross. That is, so far when we've been looking at how we came into Christ, how we received Christ, it's particularly his death that we have been emphasising because that's where it's actually in, in chapters 1 and 2. That we have been taken out of the communion of darkness... Under the, out of, from under the, the law and its demands, out of the death that was ours in sin, taken out of that and transferred the, into the kingdom of, of God's beloved Son. How? By the death of Jesus. And so, as it says in uh, verse 12, we have been buried with him in baptism. Or again, as it says in 2 verse 20, we have died with Christ. But... When you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, you do not receive the dead Christ. You receive the living one. For he not only died, but rose again. When we talked about receiving Christ, I particularly draw your attention back to chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. For if you want to see him as Lord, that is with a passage in the epistle which really sets out the Lordship of Christ. And one element of the Lordship of Christ, a very important element, in verse 18 is that he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn amongst the dead, or from the dead. He is the firstborn from among the dead. That is the heir, the, the beginning of, the, the heir and owner inheritor, not only of the living, but from those from the dead as well, from the resurrection as well, from the life to come, this age and the age to come. Both things he is the Lord of, because he is the first one to rise from the dead. He is the one who starts the whole resurrection age. And so we not only have died with Christ, but if we've received Christ Jesus as Lord, we've also risen with Christ. Come back down with me to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, 
and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you are dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. It's not only that you die with Christ, but you are also raised with Christ. It's not the dead Christ that we receive, but the dead Christ who has risen again to eternal life and to to the resurrection life that we receive. And in receiving him, we ourselves have died and risen again. And so we've been raised with him. God has made us alive with Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Paul talks about this in the Ephesian epistle and says we have been raised up to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus uses different language to speak of the same reality when he talks in John 3 about the necessity to be born again. We are dead and we need to be reborn. It's the same idea, it's different language that's being used. It's a different part of the, not a very different part of the Old Testament, but it's a different part of the Old Testament being alluded to. The idea of a new birth the idea of a spiritual birth that is being spoken of. You see, when we talk about being raised up to sit with him in the heavenly places, because notice verse 1, that's what it says we are. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated in the right hand of God. You have been raised up with Christ. Well, we know where he is. Where are you? You say, I'm sitting in Daniel Park. Well, not in the park itself, in the, the local church. But the Bible is saying, no, no, if you're with Christ, if you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, then you're not sitting in Centennial Park, you're sitting in heaven. And you say, well, it doesn't really look like heaven to me. It doesn't certainly feel like heaven. I thought the chairs would be more comfortable. There's a whole range of thoughts that you might have about sitting in heaven, but that's what's happened. It hasn't happened physically, but it has happened spiritually. When Christ returns, then it will happen physically as well. See, I've been spiritually born again, but physically No, it's the old me, deteriorating, falling apart, bagging, sagging, wrinkling, and all the rest of it. It's the old me. When Christ returns, the new physical me will appear. Now, I live in two worlds. I live in this world physically and that world spiritually, simultaneously. But at the moment, it's a hidden life. It's not one that you can actually pick out. You can't look from here and say, well, now that person's been born again. That one hasn't. That one has. That one hasn't. Those, those two clearly haven't. That one has. Yeah, that one hasn't. There's no kind of little aura that is being given out from behind your heads that can kind of show forth that's the one and this isn't the one or no little kind of horns popping up to show that one hasn't yet or something or other. Or the tail is still wagging so we can... No, you can't see it because it's spiritual at the moment. In the last day, you will see it. But now... It can't be seen. Come with me to Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Notice the past tense. That's the perfect tense. It's really the thing that's happened in the past, which sets where you are at the moment. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See what's being said there? It's a double logic one. It's the same thing. Since this is the case, this is the way to act because this is the case. This is the case and this is the case. exactly the same things. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your mind above because... That is where you now live, in a hidden style, and one day you will be seen to be there. Your life is Christ, and your life now is a hidden life. But it will one day be open and public, and then you'll be just like him. Here's a little poem to help grasp the kinds of language that goes around and around in these passages. It's based on this uh, passage before us. Let me read to you. Dead in sins, we were to die. And yet, he died that we may live. For in his death, we all did die. 
and in his rising came to life. A hidden life that none can see till he appears and we like he. It's the ideas of Colossians that have been the poet's mind there. Possibly 2 Corinthians 13 as well. We are dead in sins. That's what's being said there in chapter 2 verse 13. You were dead in your sins. Being sinful people, we were dead and under the judgment of death also. Dead in sins, we were to die. The spiritual death lay ahead of us. And yet, he, that is Jesus, he died. Why? So that we may live. Because for in his death, we all did die. See, when Jesus died, he didn't die for himself. He didn't die his death. He is the author of life, the prince of life. He didn't die his death. He died your death and my death. That's the death he died. So that in his death, we all did die. 2 Corinthians 13 has that. 2 Corinthians 10, 13, isn't it? No, 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 no. 2 Corinthians, give me the chapter, please. 5, verse 13, thank you, has that idea that in his death, we all did die. And in his rising to life, we come to life as well. But the life we come to, a hidden life, that none can see. That is, until he appears. And then this strange finish to the poem, and we, like he, like he appears, and we will appear like him. For now you cannot see him either. You can't look around and say, look, there he is, look, there he is, look, here he is, over there. You cannot see him. He has risen. But one day he will appear, and then we who have also been raised with him spiritually will appear also in that same glory. Now, since this is the case, how do we live? What is the appropriate lifestyle for those who have died and risen with Christ? Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Set your heart and your mind where you are. Since that's where you are, you are no longer living here, but you are now living there. Well, live there is the answer. You see how the ethics comes out of the reality, out of the situation, out of the gospel itself. See, where are you living? Are you still in your sins and in your trespasses? Are you still caught up under the judgment of God? Well, what you need to do is receive Christ Jesus as Lord. For he will free you from the condemnation he, will, he has already died for you to pay the penalty for you. You need no longer live under the wrath of God. You can now be brought to new life to live with Christ in this age and for the age to come. If you have, or since you have, those of us who have, how are we to live? Well, it depends where you are. You see, if you are there, if you are at the right hand of God, if you are not on earth but above, then that is where you're to do your living. That's what you must set your heart on, set your mind on. Set your hearts and minds not on the things of this earth, but on the things of heaven. Seek them, think about them, aspire and desire them, long for them, make your ambition, your plan, dream, work towards these things, the things of heaven, fill your mind with them. For the thought, of course, is the father of the deed, live for these things. We're at the moment living in Australia, most of us, I presume. Can't be sure where you are anymore, can you? But here we are living in Australia. Say you decide that Australia is not the best place in the world to live. It's not the best for you. It's not the best for your, for your children. And so you decide to, to migrate somewhere else where it will be better for you and better for your children. If you've made that decision and you leave here and go elsewhere... I've got to pick a country here which is not going to be offensive to anybody. Uh, Peru. Anyone from Peru? Good one. I tried it Friday night. No one from Peru there. Why don't we have more Peruvians in our churches? Well, okay, we're in Peru. It's a pity I picked Peru because I know almost nothing about it. Lima is the end of my knowledge of Peru. But there you go. In Peru. I've left Australia. Why? Because I'm dissatisfied with it. I didn't live in the eastern suburbs. It wasn't the place to live. I've left Australia. 
I've now moved to Peru because I think that is a better place to live. If you've moved there, then why do you go on living like an Australian? Australia was so rotten, you left it. Peru was so great, you went to it. Why not live a Peruvian? Why do you still want to eat meat pies? Why do you still want to drive Holden cars? Why do you still want to follow a rugby league? Why do you still get Vegemite sent to you? If you have left the old because the old was no good, why do you go on living for the old? You've died to the old. You've ripped up your citizenship papers. You've taken out the new citizenship papers. Well, speak Spanish. Watch soccer. Eat the whatever it is that Peruvians eat. <laughs> that is the lifestyle that you wanted. If you didn't want that lifestyle, why did you ever migrate there? Why not go back where you belong? Well, now, that's a bit of a difficulty because I don't actually believe in total assimilation. I think that uh, in migrants... So let me pick another one then. I have retired from playing football. Many years ago, I retired from playing football. And as I get older, my whole anatomy takes on more and more the shape of a football, having retired from it. I have moved on to golf, from which one day, no doubt, I will retire in order to move on to bowls. I hope my anatomy doesn't take on that shape. <laughs> now, if you have retired from football, if you said, no, football's gone now for me, why at, the at autumn each year do I get out some football boots, tighten up the sprigs, polish off, the get out some new laces, get the ball, get the old bicycle pump out working? Why do I do those things if I have retired from football? What is appropriate now for me is to get out my golf sticks, to get the putting machine on, the, on, on the, the lounge room floor, is to get out in the backyard and practice some chips to try and learn the impossible art of keeping your head down. I've got to take, take my lessons to learn how to cure my slice and how to advise Peter to cure his hook. I've got to... I've cured my slice. <laughs> I just thought I'd point that out, seeing he's here tonight. I've got to take on this, the new lifestyle because I've said, football's over, golf is on. Why then do I go on hankering after the football? It's dead, it's had it. Well, I have, for it anyway. It's over as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's no longer the issue. Now something else is there. There's something awfully pathetic about those old men who must go out playing football, isn't there? Something fundamentally, you think, well... Can't you see that it's past? Can't you see that you have grown past it? But now that's the kind of situation. It's the since then logic. Since you have said no to the world and yes to the world to come, since you've said no to yourself and sins and yes to Christ, why do you still go on living for yourself and living for the world and ignoring Christ? You're no longer living in this world. You are now living in the world to come. Therefore, live for the world to come. And where do you start living for the world to come? In your mind, in your heart, in yourself as a person. Long for the things that are to come. They're the things you wanted. You didn't want that. That's why you said no to it. That's why you dropped dead to it. That's why you've given up it. You wanted the things to come. Long for them. Seek them. Desire them. Plan for them. Make it your ambition to reach them. They are the things that now matter to you, don't they? Don't they? Where your heart is, there shall be your treasure also, says Jesus. But what are the things above and the things below? What are the things of heaven and the things of this earth? I mean, what does it mean I'm no longer to be interested in anything of this world, uh, insurance companies or, or homes or cars? Or... Now what I've got to do is spend all my time thinking about angels and clouds and harps. Well... It's spelt out in chapter 3 and 4 what that lifestyle of the age to come is about. It's too much of it for one sermon, that's why we're doing it in two. It starts off in verses 1 to 17 with the magnificently forceful language of put to death, kill, murder. Christians are commanded that they must commit murder. Well, put to death, verse 5, sounds like it, doesn't it? Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Kill it off. You have died to it. Kill it off. 
That's what you're told to do. Put it to death. Murder it. Whatever is of your earthly nature. And put on, clothe yourself in verse 12 or um, uh, verse 10. Put on the new self. You've put off the old self. You're putting on the new self. Well, put off the old. Put on the new. It's the character of what you're being... What, it's just putting into practice what you've come to believe. Having died, we are to put to death. What? Our earthly nature. In verse 6. Or in verse uh, 7, the things in which we used to walk. The things in which we once lived. The things that brought the wrath of God. Or in verse 9, our old self and its practices. That is what we're to put to death, our old self and its practices. Notice, what we're to be putting to death are things that are natural to us. They're not strange things, they're not foreign things to us, they are things that are our old self. They are ourselves, the things of our very nature that we used to live in and walk in and do and practice. Very important to see that because... We keep underestimating how sinful we really are. And we keep on surprising ourselves when we commit sin. You think, I didn't think I was that kind of person when you are. You always were and you always have been. The reason you didn't do it earlier was just lack of opportunity. It's the only reason. Now you've been put in a situation of opportunity. You've gone for it. What have you gone for? What you always were. It's just your very nature. It's that which we are to put to death. There are examples spelt out in these few verses. I don't want us to limit the old nature to just these things. These are but examples. There are many other things that you could point to. But these are the kinds of things he means by your earthly nature, by the things of this earth that we're to now spurn. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. We'll come across to verse 8. But you now must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips, and do not lie to each other. These are the kinds of things that are of your earthly nature, of your flesh, if you like. It's like the works of the flesh or the works of the sinful nature listed in Galatians 5. Let me read those to you. The acts of the sinful nature are, are obvious, rather, Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and in case you've missed out on any one of those, and the like. Here is what is natural to us. These are the things of this world. These are the things that you should expect to read if the journalists are accounting what the world is like. Because this is what people are like. You know, well, that's a bit rough, I mean. Orgies and the like, I mean, I've missed out. Where were they all? You see, it's a reflection of my heart that I actually would ever feel that I've missed out on something that's degenerate, but it's the character of us. It's of my nature to be like that. It's very interesting, you see. You never have to teach someone to be sexually immoral. It's fascinating, isn't it? Even though... We may say, I don't like that kind of thing. Even though you may say, pornography is dreadful. Even though you might perceive how degrading it frequently is to, to women, how degrading it always is to human relationships, how degrading it is to our own sexual nature. Even though we may see that, yet when something comes on the screen, we say, oh, it's interesting, isn't it? Why? Because it's natural to us to pervert and to twist even that which is good. You never have to teach anybody to like it, to want it, to desire it, to be titillated by it, to be fascinated by it. You never have to teach anybody. That's why, of course, censorship is a necessity for a healthy community. Absolute necessity for a healthy community. That's why our community is so sick, of course. You've got to have a censorship because you don't have to protect the children from the pornography. They by and large don't understand it. You have to protect the adults from it because we do understand it and we like it. You say, oh, I can't imagine myself ever liking it. Well, I'm glad of that, but I'm sorry for you because you don't understand how sinful you are yet. 
It's the character of us to be sinful. But greed is the same, exactly the same. Well, have you ever heard a, a parent teaching the child, now make sure you get the biggest piece of cake for yourself? <laughs> Don't let any of those other children play with your toys, you just keep them for yourself. <laughs> Johnny, take that block away from Mary quickly, she might enjoy playing with it. No, no, all the time parents are saying, share your toys, Johnny, that's right, you play with the others, give them their turn, they have their turn, don't they, dear? Now offer the cake around to everybody else, keep your thumb off the biggest piece, dear, go on, let everybody else have it. Why do you have to teach children not to be greedy? Because greed is natural. Being unselfish is unnatural. You never have to teach children to tell lies. It's completely and utterly natural to us to tell lies. You have to work awful hard to tell you, teach yourself to tell the truth. That's very much harder. But telling lies, oh, they, they flash into your mind at a moment's notice, don't they? Where are they generated from? You don't have to worry about demons and all the rest of it. They're generated from our own hearts, our own self-centeredness. Now, now, each of these things, anger, malice, each of these things are the very things that are us, I am sorry to say. They are the character of our lives, very sadly. You see, losing your temper, that's not something that you have to teach. Filthy language, it's, it's, it's semi-amusing, isn't it? But when the poor, I'm sorry I use the word poor in a sense, but when the poor migrant first arrives in Australia, the first bit of English he learns, by and large, is filthy language. That's the first bit that we have got in our great civilization to teach anybody. It's about the only thing Australia has to contribute, I think. Hmm? Filthy language is a dreadful thing, ultimately, but you never have to teach people that they just seem to be able to acquire it. It's that capacity to actually have emotional shock effect upon your audience. And if you've got a very limited brain, you'll have a very limited vocabulary. And therefore, you have to say things that are totally inappropriate in order to get any shock effect. Now, it's because of the very limited education available to us in Australia that we've had to develop so many swear words. Because we obviously haven't got the vocabulary to cope with the possibility of ever expressing what our emotions are like. We just can't do that. So therefore we drop into words that are totally inappropriate to the circumstance and situation and subject we're speaking on. And there are many people who cannot get through a sentence without filthy language on their lips. Shouldn't be so Christian should not be like that. Now, many areas of our congregational life, I am thrilled and pleased to see the way in which God's Spirit has worked in changing the hearts of our people, in changing your hearts and mine. It's thrilling to see the unselfishness of our congregational life, for example, on the whole issue of money, that you are not so greedy with your money, but generous with it that the congregation gives so generously the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a marvellous testimony to the work of God. That within this congregation, we're able to see something like 14 or 15 people paid for by the congregational funds to do the work of the gospel with, with nothing more than plastic boxes sitting on, the, uh, on, the, on the, the tables on the way out and occasional reminders and people taking the responsibility to just keep giving is a sign that something miraculous has taken place in the lives of people. Something miraculous has. Because those who are by nature greedy and selfish have become in practice unselfish and generous. That's a very big miracle. This is a miracle place, a miracle palace that we meet in here. Of course, it's not the kind of miracle that most people think of as miracles, but then again, most people don't think. So it doesn't matter very much. It is a great miracle, you see, and I'm very pleased about it. One area that worries me a little, because I occasionally hear it, and if I hear it, and some of you guard your lips very carefully when you're near me, then I guess it must happen much more when I'm not around. And that is the loose language the, uh, on the lips. Oh, I know it's not as bad, as those outside, and for that we should be very thankful to God. But let's not judge our, our standards by those outside. That can't be right, can it? Let's make sure that our language is always seasoned with salt, is always pleasant to the hearer, causes no offence by its choice of words, that we, 
really do work out. I know for some of us who are well-trained veterans in the art of swearing, it's a fairly difficult thing to get your lips and, and your mind and your, all the rest of it back, but do work at it. It's an important testimony about Jesus Christ. It's another little thing that the world around about knows about Christians. It's marked about Christians. They actually, it stands out about Christians. It's not just Christian ministers. It's that we are different. Even in our language, we are different. And in Australia, we stand out as beacons. We are so different in that area. So do keep working at it because it's all part of the old self-centred, old life that was in a, that you've come to death with. Excuse me, putting in a little plug. But then again, that's my job, isn't it? So it's our earthly nature. These things bring the wrath of God. That's why we've got to give up them because they are the very kinds of things for which Christ died. Christ died because we were doing those things. And we have said, yes, we want to avoid the wrath of God. We want to turn our back on the sinful things. Well, they are the sinful things. They are the sinful things of us. That is what we must put to death. The old self with its lies. For remember, who is the father of lies? The old self with its divisions. Jew and Greek and circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free... They are the old ways that we're always dividing people off from people on irrelevant discriminatory practices. We're not to be like that. Oh, the joy that we actually have inside our congregation. I'm nice hearing about that prayer and Bible group that we heard from earlier, where there's people from everywhere, even in Melbourne. It's marvellous to hear that really the divisions do break down. I worked out there are over 40 nationalities represented in our congregational life here in this building. In our membership, anyone, the membership role. Over 40 nationalities that we have represented. There's not many places in our community where over 40 different nationalities can be calling each other brother and sister and treating each other like that. You see, a great miracle is taking place. You've got to open your eyes to see it. You've got to think about it because it's not like those leg-pulling ministries which kind of strengthen lengthen one leg and then say, look, the miracle, he can now walk around the hill with a limp. That's not the kind of... That's not the kind of miracles that really matter. The kinds of miracles that matter are the ones that are taking place here, that people's earthly nature is being taken off, being put to death, that people of all around the world can actually join together in friendship and harmony and love because they have something in common which is greater than any of the divisions of this world. It's a great thing takes place, you see, in that. A marvellous thing. The old self needs to be put aside. Notice all the characteristics of the old self is antisocial. Just ponder that for a moment and you'll see it. Anger, rage, malice, filthy language, lying, sexual immorality, greed. It's all antisocial, isn't it? That's the character of sin. It always destroys relationships. And it's completely natural. I'll say another little thing just about Christianity at this point, and those of you who are not Christians might just take note on this. As far as I understand... Christianity is the only philosophy, the only religion in, in the world that teaches that it is natural for mankind to be immoral. Very interesting thing, that, because I defy anyone to, prove me, to, to show me that Christianity is wrong at that point. The track record of mankind, the track record of every individual I've ever met, is thoroughly consistent with what the Bible says about us, that we're immoral. And there's no other system of life and thought that I know of that believes that man is immoral, let alone any system which shows how to transform immoral man into an ethical man. You need to ponder that. For here at last is someone speaking the truth about me. I am immoral by nature. I am antisocial by nature. And here is one that's talking about having that done away with and putting on something completely different. Of course, it's not just negative. Let's look at the positives here. In the second half of the section, 10 through to 17, etc., we're to put on, verse 12, we're to clothe ourselves. Here again is a consequence, a therefore word in verse 12 you see there. Therefore, as a result, as an outworking, as a conclusion of the gospel, therefore, what we're to do is to put on compassion and kindness and humility, bearing one another, forgiving one another, putting on love, verse 14. 
These are the kinds of things that we are to be putting on because we are God's chosen people, God's holy people, God's dearly beloved people. We are the ones whom he has transferred out of, the, out of darkness into the kingdom of his son. We are his people, renewed in Christ Jesus. We are the ones who have been raised up to sit with him in the heavenly places. This is the kind of clothing we are to put on. Here are the rags of righteousness that are appropriate for our new existence. Forgiveness as the Lord forgave, love which binds together, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, putting on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And again, it's just like the fruit of the Spirit back in Galatians 5, isn't it? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such thing there is no law. And these are the things that make for society, make for harmony. Who do you want to have living next door to you? Someone who's full of anger, jealousy, strife, malice, hatred. Is that the kind of next door neighbour you want? Or do you want a next door neighbour who is somebody full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness? The contrast is fantastic, isn't it? It is stark. And it is a spiritual contrast. My old nature is to be put off because there is a new nature to be put on. The new nature of heaven that is to be put on. That I am to be bearing with you and forgiving you because God forgave me in Christ Jesus. Who am I to hold accounts against you? I am to be living in compassion and kindness. And we're to put on that love which will bind us together. And we're to have the peace of Christ rule in our hearts because we are all members of the one body, namely Christ. We are his church, his body that has been mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 18. When we received Christ Jesus as Lord, we were raised up to be members of his body, the church. That is, when you come into fellowship with God through Jesus, you immediately come into fellowship with God's people. When I was born as a child of Arthur and Dorothy Jensen, I immediately came into the world as the brother of Ralph and Peter Jensen. I had no choice in that matter. You can understand. No choice at all. I had no choice in the birth either. But you see, you didn't, didn't, just didn't take on the parents. I had to take on the brothers as well. When you take on God as father, you take on the, the family as well, the whole brotherhood. Because when I was, became part of the resurrection life, when I came under Jesus Christ, who was the firstborn from among the dead, I became a member of his body, the church. And so I've gathered, and now I've got to live with you, how am I possibly ever going to get on with you? How are you going to get on with me? It's the problem, isn't it? By loving one another, by forbearing, by patience and kindness, by forgiving one another, by the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, by being thankful to God for the great mercies he's had and by having the word of Christ dwell amongst us as we teach each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice the reason for singing. It's teaching the word of Christ to each other. It's teaching the gospel message to each other. We sing to each other not just to God, we sing in our hearts to God, but we sing with our voices to each other. That's why it's important we sing louder than we usually do, friends. You've got to at least reach the person beside you on either side. If you really think your singing is dreadful, then sit on the outside wall. Then you only have to reach one person instead of two. But do sing loud enough so that we can encourage each other. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Onward, Christian soldier. We're not singing that to Jesus. We're not singing that to God. We're saying that to each other. Even when we do sing something that the words are directly to God, we sing it out loud so that each other may be encouraged by it. But what are we to be singing? Notice the content of our singing is important. It's the word of Christ which is to dwell in us because we're to be teaching each other in our singing, but not only in our singing, in everything we're doing. Teaching and admonishing one another. That's the exercise of congregational life. Here we are before, before this very moment, you see. What have we got? The, the word of God open in front of us and we are trying to teach each other what the word of God is saying so that indeed our fellowship might be based on that and verse 17, whatever you do. Whether you do it or whether you say it, whatever you do, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving to God the Father through him. Verse 17 is one of those standard verses that you highlight in yellow and that you, you tapestry and put above your bed and, uh, in your room 
I mean, it can be the, the motto verse of life, can't it? Because it actually says everything, doesn't it? And whatever you do, well, that includes everything, doesn't it? But in case you think it doesn't mean things that you think and say, whether you, in word or deed, everything, do it all, whatever it may be, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And of course, one of the old tests of whether something's sinful or not is to ask yourself, can I really be doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? It would stop you doing a lot of things if you asked that question each time, wouldn't it? And might challenge you to do all kinds of other things. So we put to death what is outside of Jesus because we've put on Jesus. And we put on whatever is in Jesus because we've put on Jesus. You see the basis of the ethics? It's not a set of rules and regulations. It's just the outworking of the relationship. We have died and risen with Christ and so our hearts and minds are to be set on Christ. We are to appear like him, and so we must seek now to be like him. Is this the basis of your ethics? The gospel relationship? Well, of course, the first question is, have you got that gospel relationship? If you haven't got the gospel relationship, there's no point putting on the ethics, because it won't work. You don't become a Christian because you live like Christ. You live like Christ because you've become a Christian. You've got to get it in the right order. Get the horse and the carriage the wrong way around, you'll never get anywhere. Because you have died and risen with Christ, then you go on living that way. Going on living like that won't actually make you Christian. And the whole confusion, that one, isn't it? It's all like marriage. One day, I romped into a building, I said, I'll love you for better, for worse, for rich or poor, and sickness and death, until death is part, all that. She said the same kinds of things. We signed the piece of paper. We smiled in front of the camera for the next three hours. <laughs> Muscles all sore. The agony. There was a camera in those days. These days it's all videoed. You don't have to smile. They catch every, every little glance. So it doesn't matter anymore, I suppose. But there we are, all dressed out in a dinner suit. I look fairly splendid in the dinner suit. Helen was there also. And... Um, there we were, you see, we made all these promises. The end of these speeches and all that other kind of thing and the cake and the rest. She went home and lived with her folks. I went home and lived with my folks. Do you believe it? He said, well, if you did that, you say, well, hang on. What were you doing in church? What was the cake about? What was the waltzing around the floor? What was the dinner suit for? What was the ring? What was the signing of the paper? I mean, everything you said was bachelorhood, be dead. Married life, here I come. And yet when the chips were down, what did you do? You ran back as a bachelor. Sent her off as a spinster yet again. I'm sorry, it's the only word that's available to me. If you can give me a bacheloress yet again. There she goes, there I go. That's ridiculous. You have entered into a relationship which by the very nature of the relationship has certain consequential behaviour patterns. Now, it'll be different from couple to couple. It's not spelled out whether or not I will or will not tickle her. It's not spelled out whether or not I will or will not do the washing, uh, the washing up or the hoovering. Or nothing like that's spelled out, is it? It's just the general principle that no longer am I going to live as a bachelor. No longer is she going to live as a spinster. No longer are we going to be living with our parents. Now we're leaving father and mother and we're being united together as a couple to live together as a new unity. That's what's being spelled out. How it works out in practice changes differs from couple to couple, doesn't it? But there is a lifestyle that is unmistakably married as opposed to a lifestyle which is unmistakably single. There's the, there, the two are quite different, aren't they? Same with being a Christian. It's as simple as that in a sense. But once you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, to go on living with yourself as king is a nonsense. If you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, we'll put to death the old, put on the new. Have you done that? Married or single? In terms of your relationship with God. Have you entered into the relationship with God where he is your father? Is that the state you're in? Or are you still living outside of God? Well, if that's the case, then... Do come and talk to us. Talk to one of the staff members. Come and talk to me about it over supper if you like. Because I'd love you to 
get to know Jesus Christ as Lord, to receive Christ as Lord. For that is the first and fundamental step and in a sense everything else is irrelevant until that is fixed up. But if that is your step, then what are you doing about it? Not about something additional to it, but about it. If you are born again, if you are dead with, to sin and risen to Christ, then put off the old, put on the new. I rejoice as your pastor to see how much that is taking effect. I will rejoice more to see more in this area. Do you want to ask questions and make comments about what I've said? Or the passage? Yeah. Uh, verse 5, I'm asked, ends up with the phrase, which is idolatry, to what does the which refer? Is it refer to all sin, all the list that's there, or to the word greed? That's not what the question is, but that's what I'm turning it into. The answer is greed. Greed is idolatry. Right, now, I've forgotten where the other cross-reference you'll get to that is. Uh, I should look out my cross-references and see, but I can't get it quickly enough. Ephesians 5.5 5 will give you a cross-reference to it, which I think says again that greed or covetousness is idolatry. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. That is, what is idolatry? It is living, it is giving your life, it is worshipping the things of this world, the creation, rather than the creator. Now materialism, greed, is always exactly that. If I'm living my life to acquire a bigger, better house, a bigger, better boat, a bigger, better car, a bigger, better salary, a bigger, better everything of this world, then I am an idolater. I may not have a kind of a picture of a Ferrari over my bed at night, but if I'm living my life for the Ferrari, then I'm an idolater. Greed is idolatry. Materialism is idolatry. And of course the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any graven image. You really bomb out very severely if you're a materialist in terms of the first two commandments. You don't have to go beyond that. You see, it's, it's the very character of sin character of idolatry that is greed now there are religious forms of idolatry as well making statues stained glass windows falling down and all that kind of thing before them but religious idolatry is a different you know I mean, it's, it's still worshiping the create creation rather than the creator we must preach at idolatry sometime important subject yeah Verse 17 talks about doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the suggestion is that before we brush our teeth each day we, we just give a little incantation, you know, in the name of Jesus. And a gargle in the name of Jesus. And so on. What does it mean to do things in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, the name is, is more than just the word Jesus, uh, which wasn't his name anyway. His name was Joshua. But it's not just that kind of word, those syllables. The name is the reputation, the character, the, the person. So when you do things in the name of somebody, it is consistent with his character, his person, his plans and purposes. And so you bring honour or dishonour to the family name by the way in which you live. And so your parents can be ashamed of you because you have brought dishonour upon their name. Now, no one's actually used the, the syllables of the name, Jensen, but you can bring honour to the name of Jensen or you can bring dishonour to the name of Jensen. Well, I can because I bear that name. I bear the name of Jesus. I'm a Christian person. The way I live will bring honour to the name of Christ or it will bring dishonour to the name of Christ. So everything I do must be done in the name of Christ that people seeing me will speak well of Christ because what I've done is consistent with the very character and person and nature of Christ. Yep.
I may, I may not be understanding this question correctly, so I'll rephrase it, and if I haven't understood it, you'll talk to me at supper time, right? It's the question of how do we balance off putting Jesus Christ as Lord in my life, in the decisions I make of life, and fulfilling my needs in life as to how do I put Christ before my needs in, in the way in which I go through the choices of life? Needs, of course, is a very important word because it's different from the word wants, isn't it? The question is, what does Christ want me to do? Now, by and large, I don't start at that point. I start at the point of having nappies and, and parents who, who do things for me and teach me the way to live. And it's only down the track that I start even hearing there is a Christ and saying, no, what, what's what? But you could theoretically start right back and say, okay, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to find out what it is Christ wants me to do. I'm not going to eat until I find out Christ wants me to eat. I'm not going to clean my teeth until I find out Christ wants me to clean my teeth. Let's start from a blank piece of paper and try and work out what Christ wants me to do. Now, once I start that exercise, I've got to work very quickly or I'll starve. But once I start that exercise, I will start to discover that many of the things that Christ wants me to do are the things that I need to do. That is, Christ has created me as a physical body and given to me the foods of this earth to eat and enjoy. Therefore, he wants me to eat and enjoy the foods of this earth. And indeed, it's the, spirit, it's the, it's the doctrine of the demons we're taught in 1 Timothy chapter 4, which tells us that, it's, that you should abstain from foods. So what I'm to do with foods is to receive foods with thanksgiving. That's what 1 Timothy 4 teaches me. Well, I've got to be able to read from Genesis through to 1 Timothy 4 before I die of starvation, of course, but by the time I got to 1 Timothy 4, I should have worked it out already, even Genesis 1 would have told me, but that eating, and so eating food is a good Christian activity. Now also in, Galatia, in Genesis 3, I'm taught that clothing is, is a provision from God because of my need to cover my shame, my need of protection against you and protecting myself, you, you against me, etc., and the whole activity of keeping warm, I mean, it's all part of God's good creation for me. And so I can, if I work quickly, and I start from this blank piece of paper, build up the whole thing that Christ wants me to do, and it will cover my needs. It may cover, and will cover, some of my wants as well. But there'll be all kinds of things that you and I do which won't be on the list. Now, they're the things that we've got to start looking at. Now, none of us go through the blank page exercise. We're, you know, plonked down in the middle of our lives. We've found out Christ Jesus is our Lord now, and now we've got to try and unravel all our bad thinking as well as putting on new thinking at the same time, and that's what fellowship is about, isn't it? It helps us to go through that process, prayer and Bible groups, as we talk with each other, as we admonish each other, as we say, well, look, you know, as a Christian, you really shouldn't be ripping off other people's records like that. It's got copyright marked on it, hasn't it? and you making little tape recordings of it on the side, that really is kind of stealing, isn't it? And so you say, well, yeah, yeah, I suppose that's the case. And then, you know, and it's as we go through life sharpening each other up and pointing out things that we start to see how there are many things that we are doing that are not appropriate and there are, there's positive things as well, you know, in terms of saying, well, really what we should do with our brother at this point is just bear with him and be patient, shouldn't we? And we shouldn't be kind of kicking him out and being rough with him just because he's an awkward, difficult person. Let's, let's really work at loving him and bearing with him and being patient with him. And so we learn bit by bit. Pray. Just a little louder, brother. I've heard it so far, but you're going to lose it. Just a little louder. In evangelism, so far, we talk to different people. Okay, the question is, 
in terms of our language, when is filthy language filthy language, especially in, say, an evangelistic context? Let me broad it out for you a bit there. When you speak to someone the gospel, you've got to speak in their language, haven't you? There's no point speaking in English to people who only speak French. Right? We may as well speak in their language. And indeed, there's no point speaking in educated English to people who are uneducated in their English usage. You can speak in such highfalutin uh, phrases and words that really you leave the people completely mystified as to what's being thought. But mind you, for many people, they think they've then understood Christianity perfectly because it's all a basis of mystification. Now, if we're going to communicate, we've got to actually speak in the language of the hearer. Now, what do you do if the language of the hearer is just filthy? Well, there are two sides to it, two aspects of it that I want to draw your attention to. Firstly, I think we've got to speak differently. I think we've got to be different to them in the manner of life we have, including the manner of our language, and that even in our roughest Australian elements, there is still an acknowledgement and an understanding that certain language is off. I know it's getting less and less that indication. Ladies are no longer made exceptions for, although the language does change marginally when ladies are around, and you can still appeal to the old thing of, cut it out, there's ladies present. Mightn't get very far, but there is still that vague hint of morality left in our community. There certainly is with that other group who are supposed to be especially preserved from any bad language, namely clergymen. It is fascinating, I've discovered, how people change their language in my presence. I went a hitchhike one day and a train strike, a bus strike, etc. some years ago, I hitchhiking out on Parramatta Road and a bloke picked me up and he talked to me all the way into town, driving me into town, he was a sailor. Nothing against sailors generally, I know there's a few of them here, but he was a sailor who had the proverbial sailor's language. He described the anatomy of women on the way in every second one he saw, which were quite a few, and uh, in fairly lurid and vivid terms, and chatted on and on and on and on, and we parked the car and walked up the hill at uh, Bathurst Street there, and just as we were kind of partying, he said, what do you do? <laughs> there was kind of no way I could think through a possible kind of description of my job and life that was not going to, at this point, kind of cause some difficulty. You know, a clerk in holy orders or, uh, um, I mean, you could hope like, I just work around the corner, you know. <laughs> so I said, you know, oh, I'm, a, I'm a minister and you could see this kind of video replay in his eyeballs <laughs> as he ran himself back through all the language, all the way out along Parramatta Road. And, ugh. If he could have cut his tongue out and thrown it away, if I could have cut mine out and thrown mine away, I would have done it for him. There was no way I could rescue him. It shows to me there is still that residual they know and they actually still see that's one of the signs of which you're different, which marks you out as a person of self-control, which they are not, and that you have a graciousness of speech that doesn't require you to exaggerate the truth by emotional emphasis, which is what language, which foul language is basically about, isn't it? I haven't got the truth and I haven't got the words to express the emotion, so therefore I pour this garbage over you so that you'll feel the weight of my personality. That's the kind of thing it is, really. After all, it just becomes a verbal habit because it doesn't have any impact at all. So that's one side. I think, no, still, keep, keep your language clean. However just to confuse you. Remember that language is part of a living social system. It changes over time. So that that which is bad language in one generation and one age doesn't become bad language in another generation and another age. Now when does the word stop from, you know, stop being acceptable and become unacceptable and stop being unacceptable and become acceptable again? Different people are going to disagree on, on the judgments on that. But words do change, and so standards of certain things like, well, it's the same with clothing, isn't it? You know, they, they tried to, a relative of mine actually, well, a relative of Peter's, tried to bring in a law in New South Wales in the 1930s that women's swimming costumes must all have four inches of leg, at least. That's the minimum, you see. And, uh, 
And so there was this, this law, I don't know who was going to go around with a tape measure and measure them down on Mondi Beach, but that was for many years the law of the land, thanks to one of our, I, believe, I understand, unbelieving relatives who tried to standardise the morality and say, well, there is the line in an area which really is, you can't standardise like that. So am I saying, okay, then Christians, you don't have to wear anything down the beach. No, no, I'm saying there is a thing called modesty and there's a thing called lewd. Right? There is that which, is, which is, is immodest and there is that which is modest. And if you say to me, well, how many inches of leg is there? I'll say to you, that's an irrelevance. It's got to do with an attitude of heart. It's got to do with a character of, of relationships, hasn't it? It's got to do with something of the fashion and the character and pattern of the society you're in. Now that therefore will affect the roughness and plainness with which you will speak as well. So I don't want us to have an absolute, this word must never, ever be said. Because in another day, in another generation, it may have shifted its meaning so much that it's perfectly acceptable. Likewise, there are all kinds of words that I love to use. You know, I mean, we have such a gay time here. And my friends, who I feel very sorry for, are those girls whose name is Gay. Who are you? Oh, I'm Gay. <laughs> it's a terrible problem, isn't it? They've now got to go all through the rest of their lives saying, my name is Gay. It's a pain in the neck. Just because people have changed the, the word. You see, so you can't hold words still. But at the same time, we must be different in our language. There's going to be more about our language next week in terms of being positive, not just the negatives of that verse, but positive in the early part of chapter 4. Cole, are you going to lead us in prayer, brother? Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.